0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Then Before Us podcast. I'm Jen, and today's episode is an amazing opportunity for you to listen to. I got to interview Robert P. George, who is a professor of jurisprudence and director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton. He's served as chairman of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom. He's been a presidential appointee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, and he's was in the U.S. President's Council on Bioethics. He's also been the U.S. member of UNESCO's World Commission on the Ethics of Scientific Knowledge and Technology. This interview is me trying to hang with an intellectual giant. He wrote the foreword to our Them Before Us book, so go give that a read if you haven't yet, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. Professor George, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join us.
1: It's my pleasure, uh, Jen. Thanks very much for inviting me on. I want to begin by apologizing for my croaky voice. Oh. I've uh, been fighting one of these dreadful upper respiratory infections uh, all week, uh, but let's, let's soldier on.
0: Yeah, oh, well, thanks for being here if you're not feeling 100% as well. You sound great, so it's good. Oh, okay. So our Them Before Us audience includes probably a spectrum of expertise and interests. But I would say, generally speaking, it's a group of lay people who are interested in these topics around children's rights and family structures. We're not legal experts. You're the expert in so many different things, as I was reading, but we're really thankful that you're here to educate us and just share some of your thoughts about the topics that we're really interested in. Before I get into some of our questions, um, would you mind sharing just a little bit about yourself and maybe kind of your background, but particularly... What what drew you to being interested in law? And there's so many ways law could have gone, right? You know, we watch TV shows where we think of lawyers as you're in court and there's criminal cases, but you went kind of a very different and specific direction. So I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Well, sure. I was born and brought up in the hills of West Virginia in the heart of Appalachia. Both of my grandfathers were coal miners. Uh, no one in my family had been to uh, college before uh, I went. Uh, I'm the oldest of five, all boys. Uh, my five, my four brothers and I led a sort of Huck Finn existence growing up, uh, very rambunctious yeah. gang, uh, hunting and fishing and playing bluegrass music. We're all bluegrass musicians. I, I'm the family banjo uh, player. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it was a background that didn't suggest that I would go right. on uh, into academia. But my mother in particular, but both my mother and father really, uh, were very insistent that uh, the boys go to college uh, and the idea was to try to uh, rise up in the world, have a profession, a better income, um, you know more more social standing, the kinds of things that uh, that families from humbler backgrounds want for their children right. would rightly want for their children. So I went off to a college with that very much in mind. But uh, in my second year, my sophomore year, uh, I was assigned in one of my courses, which was an ordinary survey course in political theory, um, a dialogue by the ancient Greek thinker Plato. It's the first time I'd read a platonic dialogue. I'm not sure I'd heard of Plato before that. But the dialogue was called the Gorgias. And the dialogue got me thinking about why am I here? what am I doing education for? why am I pursuing my degree? why am I engaged in these discussions and debates in class uh, these dialogues uh, My previous understanding which I know count as a misunderstanding was that the sole, the exclusive point of education of discussion of truth seeking was instrumental to to get ahead in the world to you know make more money, have a profession have, greater social standing, prestige, influence, status, those kinds of things. And in that dialogue, Plato, through his great hero and teacher Socrates, brings us around to seeing that um, more fundamental than any of those things is the pursuit of truth for the sake of knowledge itself. Mm -hmm. The truth is not merely some instrumental good, although it might have great instrumental values, or value, uh, but, it's even more fundamentally, even more importantly, worthwhile for its own sake. Uh, That, Jen, is what put me on the track. I didn't see it at the moment. I didn't see it right then. I didn't suddenly think, oh, I'm going to be a professor. But as I trace back my career, how did I end up where I have ended up? It was that moment when I began to see that truth seeking uh, is valuable for its own sake because the truth is valuable for its own sake or truth seeking is valuable for the sake of truth which is valuable for its for its own sake it also got me interested in philosophy and the particular branches of philosophy that I became fascinated with uh, were philosophy of law and moral and political uh, philosophy as a result I've dedicated my career uh, to those to those fields I I went from college I was at Swarthmore as an undergraduate onto law school at Harvard. While I was there, I did a master's degree in theology as well. I particularly wanted to study medieval philosophy where some of the best work, greatest work ever done in philosophy of law was done. Figures such as Aquinas um, uh, were great thinkers in this area. Uh, And then I decided I wanted to continue this and go on for my doctorate and pursue an academic career. So I went off to Oxford, which was then uh, and could plausibly claim even now to be Uh, the sort of world headquarters for philosophy of law, at least in the tradition of philosophy that I was interested in, sometimes known as the analytic tradition of uh, philosophy. So I wanted to know what was really true, what was really just and unjust, what was really good and really bad. Uh, How do we order our lives together? This is the question of law and government. How do we order our lives together in a way that is is just and serves the genuine uh, interests of all? And of course, I was interested in all the different streams of thought that uh, fed what we sometimes call the Western uh, tradition. Uh, Athens and Rome, uh, Greek thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, Roman thinkers such as Cicero, the biblical tradition, the great medieval uh, thinkers of the religious traditions, uh, people like Aquinas on the Christian side and Maimonides on the Jewish side, Al-Farabi, the great Muslim uh, thinker. I became interested in Enlightenment, thought, reformation. Uh, thought, the, the modern developed uh, social teaching of the Catholic Church, which is very, very important uh, when we think about law and uh, and government. Uh, all of that became uh, the center of my attention. Wow. And um, so that's what I went on to do my research about and to, and to teach about. It's why I do what I do.
0: There's so many threads I kind of want to follow. But one thing that stood out to me is the idea of the pursuit of truth. For its own sake, or for the sake of knowledge. And so, if you've been a professor for many years, you've probably seen many generations of student come through now. i'm I'm just curious if you think that that idea of truth has shifted a lot in a way that's made your job more difficult, or have you had to really get students on board with the concepts that there are, moral absolutes? Like, has that changed over time?
1: Well, there have been interesting changes over time. I must say I'm in my 39th wonderful year of teaching. Mm -hmm. I uh, began at Princeton University right out of uh, graduate school, and I'm still here. Uh, The only teaching I've done outside of Princeton uh, has been at uh, Harvard Law School, where I've been a visiting professor several times. Then many years ago, uh, I taught a a seminar at Georgetown uh, University. So my uh, experience when it comes to the number of universities at which I've taught is quite limited. Mm -hmm. But I've seen lots of different students. I have seen literally generations of students. I'm, I'm now teaching the children of my former students, and wow. uh, I think it won't be long and I'll be teaching some of the children of students who are themselves children of
0: All right, of students,
1: which is very, wow. very exciting and uh, gratifying uh, for me. Um, I find most students at Princeton this has historically been true since I arrived in 1985. Most students at Princeton are pretty much in the position I was in when I entered college. They have an essentially instrumentalist view of education and of knowledge. Um, They are focused on getting ahead. And and this is not wrong, this is not bad. I'm not criticizing them. It's too limited a vision, but it's not a bad vision. There's nothing wrong with wanting status and power and influence and and income and uh, those kinds of things. They're not bad in themselves. But the thing we need to recognize is they're not good in themselves. They're examples of purely instrumental goods. It's it's good to, for example, make more money because you can do good things with money. You can do bad things too, but you can do good things. It's good to have influence. It can be good to have influence because you can use influence for good. Same with status and prestige and celebrity. Um, But these are not things that are worthwhile in themselves. And we need to contrast them with things that are worthwhile in themselves, like faith, family, Mm -hmm. friendship, the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake across the the disciplines, across the arts and sciences and professional fields, with dignity, with honor, uh, integrity. These are things that are not merely instrumentally valuable. So I tell my students often, uh, Jen, there are some things that count, that matter, but not all that much those things are status wealth prestige power influence fame and then there are other things that really matter and those are things like faith and family and friendship and the pursuit of intellectual knowledge and integrity and honor and decency and 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 dignity so we need to prioritize things correctly we need to get our values in the proper order we need to prioritize the things that really matter over the things that matter and are worth pursuing and can legitimately be pursued. But they don't matter really, in the end, all that much. Now, early in my career, I think the main challenge was that students tended to see their educations as instrumental to getting ahead professionally. So they were focused on grades rather than content. Um, uh, They were focused on the status of the degree and the Princeton degree obviously is a very high status. Uh, they were focused on these things because they were aiming very single-mindedly at that career in law with a great New York firm or that career in business with Goldman Sachs or McKinsey things like that and there's still some of that though less of that than there was in the old days Uh, the challenge today is not that it's that so many students come in with an instrumental view of knowledge, but now they've instrumentalized their education to the pursuit of political aims. Mm. They uh, they want to pursue social justice, so they see the role of the university as essentially a political role, and they see themselves as training to be political activists, community organizers, uh, oh. leaders of advocacy uh, movements, and 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 things like this. Now. In in both those cases, there's nothing wrong with wanting a great career at Goldman Sachs or at Sullivan and Cromwell. There's nothing wrong in principle with wanting to be a community activist or a a, a social leader or to advocate for great causes. Now, of course, that all depends on whether the cause really is a good cause or a bad cause. And we can be easily deceived about what are good causes or bad causes, but both make the error of instrumentalizing education. That's not what liberal arts education is about. This is what I learned from Plato. Mm -hmm. This is what I was taught by my own great teachers. And it's what I try to communicate to my students, whether their focus is too much on getting ahead and going to Goldman Sachs, or their focus is too much on whatever their political uh, agenda is. I wanna say stop, pause, wait, think, and let's at least consider whether the point of education is the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake, in which case we're gonna have to Take a very different attitude we're not going to be able to presume we already know all the right answers right and it's just a question of now effectuating them politically. We're going to have to pause and think you know what we are frail fallible fallen human beings, we can be wrong we can be wrong, not only about the minor trivial superficial things of life, Jen, we can be wrong about the big important things you know questions of human nature and the human good. Human rights human flourishing, human dignity, human destiny. So we're going to have to be much more open minded, much more thoughtful, much more willing to engage people on the other side of us from us politically or morally or religiously, much more willing to listen and not just lecture uh, to people, much more willing to consider points of view that we might initially consider to be or regard as uh, as uh, inappropriate or out of line or unjust or wrong or whatever. Um, It's a very different attitude toward education that's required if we're going to be Socratic. And that's what I want my students to be. I want them to be Socratic. Now, if their vocations are to business, to law, that's great. If their vocations are to leading uh, advocacy organizations and pursuing justice as best they understand justice, that's great. But I don't want those aims and goals to get in the way of them getting, allowing themselves to get, doing the work to get a genuine deep education. What my friend Cornell West calls paideia, echoing the Greek idea here of deep education, contrasted with just learning skills or, or gaining information. Uh, it's it's wrestling with the big questions in a morally serious way.
0: That
1: does not presuppose that we already know the answers, right, listening to the best that has been thought and said on the competing sides of questions by the greatest through history. And there's one thing we know for sure, great minds do not all think alike. Mm-hmm. If We look at the great minds of history, they are come down in very different places on all sorts of issues. The question is, where are we going to come down? But to answer that question, we have to consult what the best have thought and said, and then consider using our own noggins, using our own intellects, our own minds, where we think the truth lies. We'll go from there.
0: Yeah. So good. I I pulled this quote you had featured on your website because I really liked it. You say, cultivate friends you disagree with, as well as those with whom you agree, because together you'll locate the soft spot in your own thinking and find common ground to build on. And with what you were saying, it made me think that That's why we've seen maybe more of um, teachers, especially in the high school and middle school age, because of maybe like you're saying, presuming that Western civilization were colonizers and it was evil. Now we're presenting you with information and education that reinforces our belief in that versus presenting people with education and facts and challenging them to come up with their own. You know, what do you think about this? So shifting a little bit to you wrote the foreword to our book, then Before Us. And uh, so we I just reread that. It was so good. And oh, I would also love to know how you got introduced to Katie or how did she find you or mm-hmm. get in touch with you?
1: Well, Katie's one of the great forces of nature. Uh-huh. It's amazing how much good she does in the world. She is smart and she is brave and she is effective and I'm just glad she's on our side mm-hmm, yeah. or on her side yeah uh I can't really remember where I first met Katie we travel in uh in the same circles sure. uh, but uh but we've known each other now for quite some time and I was really very honored uh to be able to write the foreword to that book it's a great book the points you make are just dead on uh, and they are so important today we've lost sight of the uh absolute moral obligation to place the interests of children ahead of the desires of adults right it's just it's hard to think of a more important moral principle than uh than that but we've somehow managed as a society to lose sight of it and the book brings that right back into focus right back into view so it really was a privilege for me to be able to write the uh, forward and the forward is just a I guess it took me a number of pages to say it. But what I basically was saying was, amen, sisters. Yeah. Amen.
0: Right. So when we think about law as lay people, we think something is lawful or legal because it's on the books. You know, that's against the law. Don't run a red light because it's written somewhere that you're not supposed to do it. And a police officer could pull you over but you're kind of speaking to there's a law that exists underneath whether things are written or not. And so um, the idea of natural law is something we would love to hear your definition of and just help us understand what is there that maybe exists in an absolute way that then society either sort of reflects it in the way we write about our laws, or maybe they don't reflect it. And that would be You know, so justice and injustice aren't if it's written down, but there must be some sort of absoluteness to it somewhere. Can you speak to that a
1: little bit? Uh, Certainly, Jim. Um, One way of putting the question is what is ultimate when it comes to our obligations? Is the human law what is ultimate? Mm -hmm. Or is there a law above the human law such that the human law? stands under the judgment of that higher law. Uh, as I'm sure you know, and I, I imagine your, your listeners all know, um, the Reverend Martin Luther King, when he was leading the civil rights movement, went to Birmingham to lead protests in which they engaged in nonviolent, unlawful behavior in violation of the laws of the, of, of the time in the South. Uh, they paraded without a permit, they knew they were breaking the law, they were doing it in the cause of racial justice and desegregation. As a result of breaking the law, uh, King was put in Birmingham jail, he was arrested and put in jail. From that jail, he wrote a letter. The letter was directed to eight clergymen who had criticized him for coming to Birmingham and for breaking the law. Uh, Sometimes it's mistakenly thought that these eight clergymen were racists. They were not racists. They were people who were working in some cases very actively against racial desegregation. I'm sorry, in favor of racial desegregation against racial segregation. Uh, King himself congratulated one of them in the letter. That's that's often missed, but but he, he did. Um, they wanted King and his national civil rights movement to stay out of Birmingham so that they could work through the issue on their own in a way that would be nonviolent. Now, King and his protesters were completely nonviolent, but he knew and they knew that when the protesters came, violence would be used against them. So there would end up being violence. King uh, wrote back defending his uh, decision to protest and to break the law, to try to answer their challenge. You, Dr. King, yourself, though you're now breaking the law, urged the southern states to comply with the law when they didn't like the law, Mm. handed down in the Supreme Court's decision in Brown against the Board of Education, ordering the desegregation of public schools. So, Dr. King, his critics said, how can you, now come down here and break the law when you yourself have urged the importance of obeying the law and that's when king introduced reintroduced it's, it's it's an idea that goes all the way back to roman and greek antiquity articulated through the middle ages by the great christian and other thinkers of those times the king rearticulates this distinction between the human law and a higher law king says to answer your question we have to remember that there are two types of, of, of law, not just human law and higher law, there is just law and unjust law. Mm. Those are the two types of law, just and unjust law, uh, the two types of human law. It can be just, it can be unjust. How do you tell the difference between the two? Two, if human law were ultimate, that would mean there is no difference between the two. Right. That's what's just is whatever the, the, the lawmaker in a democracy, whatever the people decide. The king says that can't be right. There has to be a distinction between just and unjust laws. We know that. Uh, The lawmaker himself, in trying to decide what the law should be, if he's a person of integrity, will say, now, what does justice require here? I want to make the human law line up with justice, with with the higher law. And King says, what that means is that in addition to the human law and standing in judgment over the human law is the higher law, the natural law. The natural law is the moral law insofar as it can be known by reason. It's the law St. Paul has in mind when in the letter to the Romans, he says that there is a law written on the hearts, even of the Gentiles. And of course, Jen, the Gentiles are the people who don't have the law of Moses. Right. That enables them to know moral truth, not all moral truth, not perfectly, of course. enables them to know the moral truths we need to know to lead our daily lives and to order ourselves as as communities and their knowledge of this law paul goes on to say is sufficient this law written on their hearts is sufficient to hold them accountable and even for god's judgment so they can't say to god well you can't judge us because you did not give us the law, you only gave them the law to Israel. But the Gentiles have a law, Paul says, as do all men, the Gentiles have a law written on the heart, that is the law of reason, the law, the moral law, insofar so far as it's accessible to reason. And that is part of the larger uh, body of law that uh, Aquinas identifies and other thinkers identify as the eternal law that is how god has arranged things ordered things in the world the natural law is reasons participation in this larger project this complete project of god's ordering the world so over and standing in judgment over the merely human law distinguishing just from unjust our natural law and divine law this is king's teaching it's entirely consistent with the whole of the Christian tradition. It's consistent with the thinking of the great medieval theologians, and it's thinking with, it's consistent with the thinking of the great Greek and Roman pagan philosophers of antiquity.
0: You're listening to the Them Before Us podcast. Make sure you head over to thembeforeus.com to find us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, donate, and more. Thanks for joining the movement. Katie says this a lot when she's speaking that we we are not a Christian organization, but Katie's a Christian, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. So many of the people involved are believers in in Judeo-Christian values. But how do we present what natural law is and why we should follow it Two people who have no faith background or maybe they're a different faith background. How, how does natural law kind of unite us all? Even if they would say, well, I don't believe in God. So I don't, I don't necessarily agree that there's a God that wrote everything on people's hearts.
1: Right. Uh, but most people believe that some things are right and wrong.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, this person, this hypothetical person we're, we're talking about, um, this person probably thinks that racial segregation is wrong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I'm going to guess that this person would say it's terrible to mistreat LGBT people. Mm-hmm. They, this person might even criticize Christianity for for being unjust to LGBT people, right? The, he would what he would or she would call LGBT people. So they believe in uh, moral truth. Okay, good. We're off to the races now we can start. Natural law, by definition, makes no appeal to revealed religion. Um, Aristotle did not have the Hebrew revelation, and yet he could articulate an understanding of natural law. Mm -hmm. Same with Cicero. Cicero does not have the Bible, but he can know truths by reason in a very systematic way. And he can reason about moral questions, based on his rational grasp of fundamental moral principles. Hmm. And that's all we mean when we're talking about natural law. The natural law is the body of, of principles, including moral norms, practical principles, principles about what to do that are accessible to reason, even unaided by any kind of divine revelation and a great deal of of my work and the work of people i'm associated with is in the identification and defense of those basic principles of of natural law which are the foundations of our thinking leading to conclusions about specific moral questions whether it's murder uh the death penalty abortion uh um any of the environmental issues that we talk about uh, uh, today, whether it's surrogacy, something, of course, Katie has uh, been uh, involved in critiquing very powerfully. Um, All the work that that we do in the political sphere is informed by. Our understanding of ethical principles, which, though, those of us who are believers would say are enriched by what we learn from Revelation do not depend on revealed truths for their fundamental knowability. We can know them because they're written on the hearts, even of the Gentiles who don't have the law. We can know them in the same way that Aristotle and Cicero knew them.
0: It makes me think, so bringing it uh, more pointed to children's rights. So one of our big things is Katie says and quotes many different thinkers a child has a right to his or her mother and father. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking, you know, we could go into any culture around the world, whether we know the language or not, or whether we're very different from them or not. And if you held up a little baby, you would know that that baby had one dad and one mom somewhere, whether they were with them or whether they were married or together or anything. And, you know, in culture right now, adults like to talk, more about maybe what's owed to us so i should get free health care i should have my student loans forgiven and i'd love to hear your take on what a mother and a father or what adults owe to children what are their rights and responsibilities or maybe the difference between those things but particularly thinking about a mom and a dad and what they owe to their
1: offspring perhaps a thought experiment would be a good way to begin Let's ask ourselves, why do we not have, and why would we all reject all of us? Not not just conservatives, not just, you know, Christians and Orthodox Jews and devout Muslims, but all of us would reject the following. Instead of sending a new mother home from the birthing center or hospital with her baby, why don't we do the following? When a woman has a baby, in a hospital or birthing center, there'll be other women having babies there too. A certain number of babies will be born on a given day in this facility. We send the woman home with a baby randomly selected. Hmm. You 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 contribute one, you take one home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you if you produce one, you get one. Yeah, but not necessarily the one that's yours. Mm-hmm. Now why? would we be shocked and scandalized and appalled like that, which we would be and should be right now we're starting to we're starting to open some issues we're starting to to get somewhere about the relationship between parents and children. That 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 children are literally part of us they're completely in, in, in the sense of their dignity independent of us their dignity doesn't depend on us everyone's dignity depends only on their humanity, but our children are related to us and we are related to them in powerful ways, bodily ways. Uh, Now this is not to belittle or in any way denigrate adoption, which when, when required is, is a beautiful and wonderful thing, but there's a reason that we send parents home with their own baby. Right not with one randomly selected from the pool produced that day or that week. Now, I think the most fundamental thing that we owe our children is to have them born and brought up in the context of a bond of permanent love and commitment between their parents. There's a name, Jen, for that permanent bond of love and commitment. It's historically been known as marriage. And there is nothing more important to the flourishing of our children than marriage. That's the most fundamental reason that governments and and, uh, political entities, states, the law are interested in marriage, after all, the law doesn't get involved in baptisms or bar mitzvahs or uh, sweet 16 parties or other private affairs, whether they're secular or or religious. But throughout history and across cultures, law and government are very concerned (laughs) about marriage. And that's because everyone understands and always has understood the critical importance of marriage to children. Marriage gin is the relationship that brings together a man and a woman as husband and wife to be father and mother to any children born of their union, conferring upon those children, the inestimable blessing of being brought up in the committed love of their biological progenitors, the 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 people, the couple whose union brought them into being and current conferring on them the additional and again, inestimably valuable benefit of having both being brought up with both maternal and paternal care and support. We know from the work of my friend Brad Wilcox at the University of Virginia and others that there's no such thing as parenting. (laughs) Right. There's fathering and mothering. Right and uh children boys and girls need both maternal and paternal care and role modeling um a little girl uh will learn what it means to be a woman from her mother most fundamentally Mm -hmm. she will learn how a woman should expect to be treated by the man with whom she is in a relationship from her father Mm -hmm. and his relationship with her mother, a little boy will most fundamentally learn how to be a man what it means to be a man from observing his father. Mm -hmm. He will learn to understand how a man should treat a woman from watching his father's treatment of his mother. He will learn what a woman should expect from the man in her life from his mother's relationship Mm -hmm. with the father. These are irreplaceable and non substitutable. Now, again, in tragic circumstances, where uh, a mother or father dies, or both mother and father die or for some reason cannot bring up their, their children, we do the best we can. There are no perfect options, but we do the best we can and adoption is the best we've got and it's beautiful and God bless adoptive parents. Brad Wilcox has adopted many children Hmm. and his wife himself. So they understand this at the same time brad understands and i understand that there is just no substitute for children being brought up in the loving committed bond the marriage of their progenitors and that's why we need to do everything we can culturally and politically to provide support to marriage as an institution there is a marriage culture every society will have one And it will be either weak or strong, good or bad. And societies that really care about children will make sure that there is a strong and flourishing marriage culture. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the marriage culture in America has been on a nosedive Mm -hmm. since the early to mid 1960s. All all indicators uh, show uh, that marriage has been extremely battered and bruised And the victims are children, the main, well, we're all the victims, right? Couple themselves are victims, the larger society are victims, but the main victims, the ones who are hurt most are children.
0: Yeah. Well, and the way you're speaking about marriage is so beautiful. It's so inspiring. And like you're saying, our marriage culture in the West has taken such a beating that most of the time it feels like. So, you know, on um, social media for my age and younger, there's a lot of pictures of women who are kind of living it up and having fun. And then it flips to, oh, but if they were married, you're scrubbing a toilet. Oh, you're having fun. No, if you were married, you'd be little kids throwing Cheerios on you. And it's this very sort of negative view of you're too likely to get divorced and um, more just highlighting the negative things instead of the positive.
1: Yeah. Um, People seek happiness uh, in all the wrong places. Um, And then they're surprised that they don't find it. Um, I don't know how people got it into their heads, that happiness was something that came from ease. Mm -hmm. It's not happiness is something that comes from commitment, devotion, dedication, hard work, sometimes painful struggle happiness doesn't come on the cheap.
0: Right.
1: And we've got too psychologized the view of happiness these days. Um, the word even the word in English, uh, uh, happiness, traditionally had a moral inflection. Uh, it would be translated more in line with uh, what uh, we would today call flourishing or fulfillment, mm-hmm. or beatitude blessing it wouldn't refer narrowly to a psychological state, you know, always having a big smile on your face or something like that. The psychological state of so-called happiness could be induced by drugs, or being put on some sort of happiness inducing um, machine. Right. But but that's not traditionally what was meant by happiness, happiness, rather connoted a sort of all round flourishing of the human being as as an individual and in community with others beginning with the community of marriage and the uh, and the, and the family. Um, I'd like to recover that older understanding that richer understanding of happiness, it, it still hangs on a bit, although it sounds archaic uh, when we use use it in this way, but if I said to you happy the man who walks in the way of justice. You would not assume that walking in the way of justice is just instrumental to achieving a certain psychological state. Okay. You would understand exactly what I'm saying. That the better life, better the man, richer, more fulfilled is the man who walks in the way of, of justice. Well, that's the kind of happiness that's worth having. And you don't get that by going to clubs mm-hmm. and taking drugs and drinking, or, you know, just just going out there and having a good old time all the time. To get that kind of happiness, you need to be in deep relationships with others like spouses, like children, like parents. And those relationships are not easy. They're the most blessed thing in the world, but they come with challenges and they require dedication, devotion, being willing to stick it out through through thick and thin. You know, if you're bringing up children, sometimes your children do things that cause you enormous pain it's it's going to be true with any with anybody bringing up children mm-hmm. um you know you don't throw them over you don't kick them out of that you don't say you know you're not my kid anymore I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna have any kind of relationship with you it's hard same you know some couples struggle they you know they hit they hit rocky pad places in their marriage and they don't seem to be able to to get along it and then and, and, and those who struggle through very often tell the story of of how that dedication and devotion enabled them to get through in a way that made their lives richer and that they so are so happy that they did not take what seemed to be the easy or even only, only way out. Now, you know, it's a different situation if there's abuse, obviously, uh, you know, uh, domestic violence, uh, uh, things like that. I'm talking about the ordinary struggles that people have because human relationships are not easy. Right. You know, and, and I'm not just talking about spouses parent child child elderly parent I'm at the stage right now where I'm helping to care with my four brothers with for my parents who are 91 and 98 wow yeah and you know I love them I love them so much and you know I, the prospect of losing them is so painful to me and of course all the caring for them is so so difficult um but you know we do it And we don't say gosh i wish they weren't around because i'd be happier i could go out with my friends more i wouldn't have to you know take the flight down to see my parents as often as i do i could attend to my own affairs and my own business yeah it's hard to do this it's hard to be in this place but is it worth it you bet it's worth it
0: right and the shift in thinking about marriage we talk in the book and katie has quoted many people is the difference between the conjugal view of marriage and the consent-based view of marriage. But I would never have known, I thought, one of those views versus the other because I'd never heard those terms before. So can you define those two terms? And maybe if you know, why did we shift from the conjugal view to the consent-based view of
1: marriage? Well, I uh, lay this out uh, in detail for those who are interested uh, in a book that I wrote together with... uh, Sharif Girgis uh, my former student and uh, Ryan Anderson my former research uh, assistant both really outstanding young uh, yeah. scholars and public intellectuals in a book called uh, what is marriage man and woman a defense. Uh, it's available in a small paperback edition from encounter books. Uh, again, it's Robert George, uh, it's Sharif Gyrgis, Ryan Anderson and Robert George, what is marriage, uh, man and woman, a defense. Um, and, and there we contrast the historic view of uh, marriage as a multi-level sharing of life. That is a sharing of life at every level of human being that is founded upon, has as its foundation and matrix, the biological union of husband and wife that's made possible by the reproductive, the sexual reproductive complementarity of male and female. So that biological complementarity grounds the relationship that exists first at the biological level, but not just there also at the uh, affective or emotional level, uh, at the rational or dispositional uh, level, and at the at the spiritual level, it's a multi level sharing of life, but its foundation and matrix is in the biological unity made possible by sexual reproductive complementarity that is historically what marriage was and understood in that way marriage was regarded as something intrinsically and not merely instrumentally good on that so called conjugal understanding of marriage marriage as a conjugal bond. The point of marriage was not something extrinsic to it, not even the great good of having children. Now it's related to procreation, but it's not instrumentalized to procreation. Nor is it related to or instrumental to pleasure or something like that, the way a a modern liberal might think. No, it's instrumental to neither of those things. Children are a great blessing and marriage can bring many pleasures and joys, but marriage is considered valuable on the conjugal understanding for its own sake, which explains why a couple, a man and woman can validly enter into a marriage, even if one or both of them is incapable of having children. So the marriage is not going to uh, have the fruit of children. They're nevertheless truly married and were understood by every tradition. Uh, West and East Jewish, Christian, Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, Buddhist, every tradition understood a couple to be truly married, even if they were incapable of having children at the same time, they understood that the ground and foundation of marriage was the reproductive sexual reproductive complementarity of the the spouses. On that understanding of marriage, Jen, we can account not only for why marriage is a male female partnership, and not a same sex partnership, we can account for why marriage is a partnership of two people and not more than two like three or four or five in a polyamorous unit right. we can account for why marriage is uh, a, a relationship that requires a commitment of permanence till death do us part and not just a term commitment like okay i i take you to be my wife in richness and poorness and in sickness and in health for better for worse for five years renewable right we don't, we don't do that we understand marriage is not that it explains why marriage has to be closed sexually and not open you can't have a marriage open marriage it's really a marriage and it explains one more thing, why the state would be interested in marriage at all and why marriage is not treated like baptisms or bar mitzvahs or six of sweet 16 parties or or any any other merely private. uh, relationship now that historic understanding of marriage as a conjugal union has been displaced over the last half century or more by an understanding of marriage, a revisionist understanding of marriage is essentially sexual, I'm sorry, sexual, uh, romantic, uh, domestic partnership, or friendship, or um, association, companionship. Now, marriage as sexual, romantic, companionship, or domestic partnership means that two people can be married, so long as they form a deep friendship and consider the other his or her number one person to quote a defender of same-sex marriage famous philosopher defender of same-sex marriage named john corvino so your spouse on this view is your number one person the bond is not at the biological level the bond is at the psychological level yeah marriage is a union of persons but the person isn't considered to be in any way the body the body's not considered to be part of the person the body's considered to be a mere extrinsic instrument of the person where the person is considered as the psychic aspect of the self the the, the conscious and desiring the center of con- aspect of the self the, con- the 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 center of of uh of uh, desire and will yeah so on that understanding I think a misunderstanding but on that understanding then sure two people of the same sex can be married why not marriage is a psychological bond i can have a man as my number one person or i can have a woman as my number one person it's it's just a question of who you want as your number one person Hmm. but by the same token on that revisionist understanding of marriage sometimes just called contractual understanding of marriage on that misunderstanding of marriage no explanation no principled account can be given of why marriage should be between two and only two people Mm-hmm. Why not three or four or five in a polyamorous sexual ensemble? You know, th- three people can be united. Four people can be united at a psychological level. Right. And think or suppose that their their unity can be enhanced and and, and made better by mutual sexual play as a, as a group.
0: Right.
1: It also can't explain why marriage should be sexually closed rather than open. Why not? It can't explain, it can't give the slightest explanation for why marriage should be a permanent commitment as opposed to five years renewable. And finally, it can give no account of why the state or law should be involved in the matter, any more than state or law is involved in any ordinary friendship. Because on this account, all marriage is, is a very ordinary friendship, an instance of an ordinary friendship. It just happens to be your best friend, your friendship with your number one, person, that it's an ordinary friendship, mm-hmm. which may or may not be open to children children really are really extrinsic to the thing. Um, uh, you may want to be made not it's just a lifestyle choice and you know the state really has no business uh, in there and there and also the very idea at the end of the day, what happens if you move to this revisionist understanding of marriage and abandon the conjugal understanding of marriage, the idea of marriage itself just slowly or perhaps not so slowly as we're seeing, dissolves.
0: Yeah, there's a lot in there. As you're speaking, I'm just thinking about, I'm going to have to re-listen to these a few times to just fully get everything you're saying because my mind goes in so many different directions. And it's I'm, it makes me think too, I was listening to Katie speak about cohabitation, but some of the things maybe apply that these relationships only last as long as the feelings last. You know, if we have a psychological connection and we're close and you're my number one person, but now I met somebody else at work or whatever who's replacing you and I'm closer to them. Now I'm quickly shifting into a,
1: to a different relationship. You have a new number one person. Uh So, you know, the idea of commitment just has no foundation here. Right.
0: I'd love to finish up with this question and it's a big question. So you can kind of take it wherever you'd like, wherever you'd like to go. But if the world were really going to prioritize children's rights, and well-being when it comes to natural law and marriage and family structure, what would we do? What would we start changing? And Katie talks about we have cultural, we have technological, we have legal. What are the things we would start doing if we really cared about the rights of children?
1: Um, well, we would do everything that we can to make sure that as many children as possible are brought up with a mom and a dad, okay. You know, ideally the, the, the mom and dad who's coming together whose love for each other uh, and its physical embodiment brought them uh, into existence. Uh, I I certainly would reform some so-called reforms of the 60s that turned out to be disastrous, uh, such as uh, adopting the policy of no fault uh, divorce. Um, uh, I would uh, uh, try to do everything that I could to make sure that uh, people understood the The different ways that mothers and fathers contribute to the welfare of of children i'd try to get people to understand that mothers and fathers are both necessary not replaceable not substitutable. Uh, I would. uh, uh, I I, I would try to get uh, as much commercialization out of reproduction as as possible, so that we move away from this place we've gone to where we see procreation as a species of manufacture and children as an object of manufacture as a product that you pay for. That's a terrible, terrible mistake. And we should get away from that as quickly as we can. We've gone in the wrong direction there children are precious human beings, bearers of profound inherent and equal dignity. Anything we do that causes us, however subtly, to conceive of them as products, to think of their coming into being as manufacture, as opposed to their coming into being as blessings and gifts that supervene on the marital love of husband and wife, you know, anything we do that takes us in the direction of thinking of children as objects, as things, as products we need to get out of. Right. So those are the kinds of things that I would uh, prioritize.
0: Thank you so much, Professor George, for your work, all the work that we can go read and listen to. And you mentioned Dr. Cornell West. That was another um, thing I, an interview, or I think it was sort of a debate, a friendly debate between two of you. I had seen one so I highly recommend people go look that up, uh, Professor George and Dr. Cornell West chatting. And if you'd like to see more of Professor George's work, including books and interviews, speaking engagements, and your folk music that you brought up, you can go to robertpgeorge.com. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Jen. Thank you very much. My very best to Katie. Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are single, married, gay, or straight, if you are defending the rights of children, you are one of us. Thanks for joining this global movement to put them, the children, before us, the adults.